our scripture reading today comes out of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And kids, if you see your folks right now on their cell phone, they are not emailing or texting. They're actually looking up the scripture, or you can look at it behind me. They're supposed to be looking up the scripture. John chapter 4, verse 25, the woman said to him, to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Then skipping down to verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here ends the reading of God's word. We have been in John chapter 4 for Advent, we're wrapping up today. It's a little bit of a different kind of a Christmas text to work out of. And the reason for that is because today is the big reveal. It's when you finally get to the fullness of who Jesus is. But let me back up first and give us a little bit of the context here. Jesus has been talking to a woman. She's from Samaria, and her life doesn't work very well. All of the things that she has put so much trust in have been utterly unsatisfying to her. They've left her worse off than before. The people in town want nothing to do with her, and the feeling is very mutual. She avoids them as much as she possibly can, and Jesus graciously will not let her avoid him. And so he keeps inserting himself into her world so that he can invite her out of her world, into something better, into his world. Shows you how good he really is, and yet, if you step back from the chapter, you realize there's something really odd about this whole story. And what's odd is that you and I know something about Jesus that she doesn't. If you read John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, you realize this is the Son of God. This is the light who is to come into this dark world. This is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. You and I know that but she doesn't. And so you would kind of expect Jesus to sort of put that in the front end of, the, of his interaction with her, put his cards on the table and say to her, by the way, I'm God, can we talk? And Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He slowly reveals himself to her, bit by bit. It's like a little crumb trail that he lays out for her. It's a little bit like a present. A little bit like a present that is all wrapped up that she can't see into. And he really wants her to see what's inside of the present, but he also understands that she can't unwrap the present on her own. 
human beings can't see into God any more than God is willing to be seen into. And so God is the one who's got to reveal himself. And so what does Jesus do as you read through this chapter? You realize that he starts to unwrap the present for her. He tells her something about himself, but he doesn't tell her everything about himself at any one point. Instead, he gives her just a little bit of a hint and then keeps on going. And so he says there in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And essentially what Jesus is doing is he's opening up, unwrapping the box, and he's saying to her, would you like a little look inside? And she keeps the conversation going. She keeps talking to him, which is her way of saying, I'm interested. I'd like to see a little bit more. She's not fully hooked at this point, but she's not blowing him off either. She keeps talking to him, and it's like she looks inside the box, and she goes, huh, it's another box. And Jesus looks at her and says, there's more here. Are you interested in any more? And she's continuing the conversation, so Jesus unwraps a little bit more. He says to her in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. He takes the paper off of this one, and he says to her, would you like to see inside this one? And now she's a little more intrigued, and she says, of course. And she opens this one. You already know this is coming. And she discovers there's another box. There's a little bit more of him. This time, however, he initiates the conversation. And he says, this time I'm going to tell you something about you. And as I tell you something about you, I'm actually telling you something about me. So he says to her, I know that you've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And she, as he's tearing off the paper of this one, says, you know what? I think I know what's inside of this one. She looks at him and she says, you're a prophet, aren't you? She's got a whole lot closer to understanding who he is, but she's not there yet. There's still a deeper core as to who he is. It's not the most important part of him, something even more essential. And so they do what? They talk theology back and forth because what else would you do with a prophet? But it doesn't seem to be getting her anywhere. And so she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now what did he just do? He just took that last package and he unwrapped this And as he does that, you realize what? It's a jewelry box. There's something really precious in here, something very valuable, something that the whole conversation has been moving toward. 
And she takes that box and she opens the box and she's absolutely amazed at what she sees in here. She's so amazed, she doesn't say another word to him. Instead, she leaves the conversation, she goes back to the town. The town that she came from, the town where their people are that she does not want to interact with and doesn't want to engage, and she goes there because she wants to tell them about what she's just seen. Just found a treasure that is so far beyond anyone's imagination. She didn't see this coming. And it's a treasure that is so big, <laughs> you can't keep it to yourself. You want to give it away to the rest of the people around you. And she is so excited by what she found that she does what? She does something very strange. She leaves her water jar there at the well. That's the thing that brought her to the well. That's the whole purpose of this entire trip. That thing that brought her is just driven right out of her mind. Why? Because she has found something that is beyond price, beyond value. And it's so far beyond value, it drives all of the ordinary, routine parts of life right out of her mind. And yet I would suggest to you that there's still a question, and that is, why the buildup? Why did Jesus go through that whole process of slowly revealing himself, unwrapping himself? Why not just come out up front and tell her who he is? You realize he could have, but there would have been something missing something important. And it's something that you have had a sense of either this morning or earlier this past week. Here's the audience, audience participation part, and you all have to engage with me, okay? Nobody gets to sit this one out. Did anybody get a gift today or a gift from this past week? I'm going to pick on you if you don't put your hand up. Daniel, you didn't get a gift? Okay. Everybody got a gift. Okay, put your hands down for a moment. Who got a gift that was wrapped? Okay, again, all of us. I have one more question. You can put your hands down. This question you have to think about for a moment. Because the question I'm going to ask is, who got a gift that was not wrapped? And here's, here's why you have to think about it first. Bicycles don't count. Okay, bicycles are awkward. Gift bags do not count because the gift is still hidden in there. I know all, See, I know some of you are thinking like that. Who got a gift that had absolutely no wrapper, no, no bag, no nothing that was just handed? I'm sorry. I can take care of that later. I've got paper up here. That can't, see, that's, a, that's wrapped. I said in a bag. Stockings are bags, kind of. Ah, uh, I really like smart professional people. Why? Did all of you experience getting something that was wrapped? Think about that. Why do we wrap gifts? The wrapping does not change the gift, right? The gift is exactly the same after it was wrapped as it was before. So why go through all that time and trouble in order to do the wrapping? It's because the wrapping does change something. It doesn't change the gift. It changes you. It changes your experience of the gift. It changes what happens inside of you. Think about it this way. Would Christmas feel the same if you walked into the living room or wherever you give gifts and all the gifts were there? 
all the gifts that you were going to get anyway, all the toys, the clothes, the games, the electronics, it was all there. You could see it all at just one shot. Would Christmas feel the same? Would a bridal shower feel the same? A baby shower, a birthday, would it feel the same if nothing was wrapped and you could just see it in one shot? And you realize, no. Why is that? It's because wrapping increases something. It increases your participation. It requires you to actually do something in order to get engaged. And so you have to, when someone hands you a wrapped gift, you can't just sit back, but you actually have to do something physical to take the wrapper off. And while you're doing that, your mind starts to get going. And so you start to wonder, what's in here? Am I going to like it? Is it something that will fit? Is it something I'm going to enjoy? Is it something that I can return? Did you keep the gift receipt for me? All of that's going through your head, and you start to anticipate what? You're anticipating not the present moment. You're anticipating the future. Curiosity wakes up. It moves you out of normal, ordinary, routine life, and it gives you hope of something to come. That's what surprises do. They force us out of the routine and they give us hope that there is an extraordinary world out there, something that is going to delight us. And when you start to feel that inside, you realize, man, I, I was made for a whole lot more than ordinary. I was made for something bigger. That's what surprises do. That's what the wrapping does. It takes you out of yourself. It transports you into that bigger world, a world that you actually want to be part of. One where you're no longer sure what's going to happen next, but you are hoping, man, I, I'm hoping that there's wonder here. I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's delight. I'm hoping that this world is bigger and brighter, more beautiful than it was a moment ago. That's what surprises do for us. And the longer that you live on a broken planet, the more you realize you have to have that. You have to have wonder. You have to have delight because those are the things that give you hope to continue. Hope that there's actually a better world that one day you could take part in. Now, I do need to say here that there are some surprises that are bad surprises. That's what we call suffering. Suffering is the kind of surprise that also plunges you into a world that is out of your control, but it's a world in which there is no wonder and there is no delight. We're not talking about that kind of surprise this morning. Although, if you think about it, we have whole industries in modern America that are dedicated to bad surprises. Do you ever watch a horror movie? Why, why, why would you do that? <laughs> what, what, what are horror movies all about? It's about being surprised, about not knowing what's going to happen next. And in that sense, it is a break from the ordinary, but it's a fraud because it's a break from the ordinary that comes with no delight. The only good thing about a horror movie is that whatever bad is happening is not happening to you, at least not in the moment. And so you get to be surprised and have that cathartic movement without having to suffer. Suffering, however, when it does happen to you, is a bigger fraud because it's also a break from the ordinary with no delight but it's a break that invites you to lose hope, hope that you're ever going to have delight again. And when life loses hope, 
All you're left with is misery. And that's what this woman has had up until now, up until this moment when Jesus steps into her world and says, I have a surprise for you. But your mind and your heart need to get themselves engaged. And so I'm going to slowly, progressively reveal, unwrap who I am. And as he does that, what do you hear from her? You hear this little thing waking up that says, I want more. 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 And he's drawing her in so that she's interested, so that she looks inside the box. Anybody want to know what's inside the box? One. Okay, good. I'll I'll show you later. Two. There's nothing in the box. Now, I didn't cheat you. I didn't set you up to be disappointed this morning. The box is empty. Why? Because what Jesus said is so huge. It doesn't fit into this box. It doesn't fit into any box. But what this lady sees when Jesus is done revealing himself is so amazing, she can't keep it to herself, has to go tell other people. So what is it that I'm saying does not fit into this box? Think about it this way. The woman said she was looking for what? For the Messiah. And she says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. She's looking for Messiah, but she's looking for a certain kind of Messiah. She's looking for the Samaritan Messiah. A little bit of history. The Samaritans did not hold all of the Scripture. They didn't believe all of Scripture. They only had the first five books of Moses. And in those books, you learn that God had promised that he would later send someone that was called the prophet, someone who would be like Moses. And this prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18.18, is someone who would tell God's people everything that God commanded. That's the Samaritan version of the Messiah. The Messiah is a teacher who would explain to them everything about God and how to relate to him. That's who they were looking for. Now, if you think about it, and this is not meant to offend teachers, If you think about it, you can wrap your mind around what a teacher is. You can understand a teacher. You can explain a teacher. You can find a teacher-sized box for teachers. You can also do that with engineers and accountants. Okay, I'm not picking on teachers this morning. You can find a teacher-sized box, one that the teacher, the one that the Samaritans were looking for, one that the teacher could fit into. That's the box that the Samaritans had put the Messiah in. It was different from the Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for. They had the rest of Scripture, that, the parts that talked about the kingdom of Israel. And so the Jews were looking for someone from the line of David, someone who would sit on David's throne, who would not only rule over them, but who would also guard and protect them. And so the Jews were not looking for a teacher they were looking for a king. And again, you can wrap your mind around what a king is, and you can find a king-sized box to put a king into. But what Jesus just said does not fit inside the teacher box or the king box or any box. He said to the woman, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Now, there's something very powerful there that you can't see as clearly in English as you can see in Greek. Translation into English is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Our version is very similar to 
the translation that most all of the English Bibles have. And yet this is one of the few times that if you can read Greek, you'll, you will get a bigger sense of who God is, of who Jesus is. And you'll understand why he doesn't fit into the woman's box or any other. See, in the Greek, it actually reads a little more clumsy. It reads like this, I am, and then it has this phrase that explains who I am. I am, comma, the one speaking to you. The one speaking to you modifies I am. That's why your version, most versions, put it first. And so the version we read this morning says, the one speaking to you, I am he. Technically, that's right. But the Greek does not have the word he there. It's implied by the Greek construction, and therefore the translators are not wrong. But the Greek text tells us that Jesus simply said to the woman, the one speaking to you, I am. Which doesn't make a lot of grammatical sense, and so the translators add the implied he. It's legitimate. But if you know your books of Moses, like the Samaritans did, little voice in the back of your head that should say, wait, I've, I've heard something about I am before. And your mind would go back to the book of Exodus. When God first appeared to Moses in the wilderness, he told him, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. And Moses wonders, what should he tell the Israelites when they ask him, well, who sent you? And God tells him, Exodus chapter 3, 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. That was in the wilderness. There God names himself, I am. 1,400 years later at a well in a very dry, parched place, Jesus says that he is I am. The Samaritans looked for a teacher, the Jews for a king, but the Messiah was so much more than either of those, so much more outside of those relatively tiny little boxes. The Messiah is God himself, come in the flesh to save his people from a slavery more powerful, more life-dominating than any nation ever exerted over any other people group. He came to save his people from their sin. It's a salvation that would take him to the cross, to substituting his life for theirs as he absorbed the justice of God against their sins. Jesus is telling her in that moment, I am God who's come to sacrifice myself for the sake of my people, come to prize what? Their eternal lives over his temporal life, over his temporary comfort. And who is it that gets one of the first glimpses of this God under wraps. It's not the Jewish establishment. It's not the Jewish rabbi Nicodemus from the earlier chapter. It's not the nation of Israel. God reveals this stunning thing about himself to this lonely, despised outcast. A Samaritan woman who has no standing in her community. Someone who not a single person in this room would willingly trade places with. Some of her misery is self-inflicted. Some of it comes from living in a world of suffering. Is she a sinner? No doubt. Has she been beaten up by life? Absolutely. Would you like something better for her? 
better than the life she chose, better than the life that chose her. And you realize Jesus did. And so he would end his life how? Despised and rejected. An outcast. He would take her shame. He would take your shame, my shame. He would attach it to himself until he was driven away from human society. Until divine society, the Father, would turn his back on Christ at the cross. Jesus would trade places with this woman, becoming the outcast that she was so that what she could be reconnected to the human race. He did that because he wanted a whole lot more for her. He wanted a whole lot better for her. And so he doesn't come to her and say, you're such a rotten sinner, I don't want anything to do with you. And he doesn't come to her and say, there, there, you're just a victim of unjust circumstances. They're really, sorry, there really isn't anything we can do for you. Instead, he comes to her and he says, you're an image of God, and there's more for you. There's a friendship with the God who not only made you, but with the God who has come to save you. And there's reconnection with the community of faith. And so what Jesus is doing in John chapter 4 is he reveals himself slowly to her, is he's drawing her in, wooing her so that she wants more. So much more that she goes back to town to introduce him to other people. Others who had, were no longer cutting her out of their lives. But people who, after spending time with Jesus, believe. Who confess to her, verse 42, that we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These are people now who are connected with God and connected with each other and connected with her. That's why the box is empty. You can't put this God into this box. You can't contain him. You can't manage him. He's too big. <laughs> In fact, when Jesus says, I am, he kind of trashes my whole illustration this morning. Because the real way to do the illustration is not with larger boxes that progressively get smaller. The real way to do this, physics constrains me, the real way to do this is to realize that when you get a little bit of God and you look in that box, what comes out of that little box is a bigger box. And what comes out of that bigger box is an even bigger box because God's boxes go that direction. The more you unwrap them, the bigger they get because he's even bigger still. So when Jesus says, I am, what's he saying? <laughs> he's saying, I'm the box maker. I'm outside of all of the boxes because I make everything that's in the box. And yet, I don't come to you and demand, notice me, recognize me, do all the hard work of coming to me. Instead, Jesus comes under wraps to surprise you, to engage you, so that you can see not just more of him, but so that you can see his heart, so that you can see that he longs for you, that he wants you. And so the question then, this Lord's Day, is how do you know if you want him like he wants you. You have to look at what you do with the boxes he shows you. Are you interested in what he reveals to you, in what he unwraps for you? Does what he shows you pull you in? Does it whet your appetite for more? Do you find yourself wanting to continue the conversation, asking him to show you a little bit more? 
When you do, that's how you know that you're hooked because you keep wanting more of him as he reveals more of himself. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about a God who delights to keep himself under wraps for however long you need to increase your delight as you see him more and more clearly. So let me ask you, have you had that experience lately? That desire to see more of him. That sense that life is just way too ordinary without him. That sense that you were made for more. If you haven't lately, take time today. Go back to him. Ask him, please show me something of you. I want that taste of the wonder and the delight that you are. Please show me more. And you can actually practice that this week. When you get a present today, later on this week, don't just rip off the paper. Think. Think for just a moment about a God who delights in delighting you. A God who spares literally no expense to give you the best that he has, a little bit more of himself. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not come the first time with a sword. Thank you that you came wearing flesh, giving us a sense of yourself, a sense of your heart for people, for us, for me. Thank you, Lord, that you have desired so much more than any of us have begun to believe. I pray, Lord, that you would increase our desire for you well past any of our desires for the fun and enjoyment of today. I pray that the fun and enjoyment of today would be important in that it teaches us, reminds us that there's more. And I pray, Lord, that we would enter into wanting more. In Jesus' name, amen.